Greetings, listeners. Welcome to Forever LDS. This is Chris Heimerdinger. Today, we wanted to talk about five compelling archaeological evidences for the Book of Mormon. This podcast was first presented on Book of Mormon Central. Now, with a few changes, we are putting it on Forever LDS. It's been with us almost 200 years. It recounts the rise and fall of two mighty nations with tens of thousands, even millions, of inhabitants. Seems perfectly natural to expect evidences to exist, right? Yet, the Book of Mormon's authors made it clear the record was spiritual, and to touch on historical matters but lightly. Its compilers minimized cultural references to maximize its universality, particularly for folks in the last days. Too many historical and cultural references might have undermined or watered down its spiritual objectives. In this regard, the Book of Mormon's authors and abridgers seem admirably far-sighted. Nevertheless, to effectively communicate many enlightening doctrines, incorporating some history and culture, was necessary, unavoidable. The volume itself outlines the best way to receive confirmation of its truthfulness. This pattern, described in Moroni 10, 3 through 5, includes desire, faith, supplication, and the Holy Ghost. Still, Latter-day Saints have questions. Nephites, Lamanites, and Jaredites had to live somewhere. A healthy curiosity need not be suppressed. Healthy being the operative word, not obsessive, not to the exclusion of principles outlined by Moroni. Supporting evidences of the Book of Mormon are broadly identifiable. The volume has long invited scrutiny from all branches of science. Archaeology itself can be divided and subdivided into numerous disciplines. I couldn't possibly cover every Book of Mormon correlation in one sitting. Today, I wanted to emphasize Size physical evidences, stuff you can touch, see, feel, even smell. I tried to present a thoughtful cross-section. Evidence one, metal plates in stone boxes, no less. It almost seems a shame to use up one of my five evidences here. The issue of inscribed metal plates in stone boxes has been so effectively laid to rest by modern archaeology that Latter-day Saints hardly remember when it was one of Mormonism's most prevalent and scathing criticisms. We were told the ancients did not preserve records on plates. We were told ancient Israelites, in particular, did not write on plates. We were told they would have been too heavy for Joseph to carry while running from desperados or heft from one hiding place to the next. Time has vindicated all such objections. Hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of metal plates, copper, silver, bronze, brass, and yes, gold, many in stone boxes, and even some bound with metal rings, have been unearthed in places as diverse as Spain, Bulgaria, Italy, Greece, Korea, Egypt, Syria, Iran, Mesoamerica, too many to mention. As for Israel, not only have we found the famous copper scroll of Qumran, but two small silver plates from Jerusalem that date to the 7th, 6th century BC. 
Finally, we learn of a shimmering gold and copper alloy called tumbaga by the Spanish that has existed from pre-Columbian times. The same composition, coincidentally, described by Joseph's brother, William, bringing in the gold plates at a nice, heftable weight of 40 to 60 pounds. Evidence 2. An Arabian altar at a crossroad called Nahum. Okay, we admit this item is on most lists of Book of Mormon evidences. Undoubtedly, because it's so spot on! Not one, but three ancient altars, inscribed with the same three Semitic consonants of the place name Nahum, as mentioned in 1 Nephi 16.34. Never mind the lack of vowels in the Hebrew alphabet that might alter the pronunciation. Nahum, or Nuhim, or the coincidence remains staggering. Not only are these altars found in the right place, they date to the right time. If that's not enough, Nahum itself appears associated with the Hebrew word for mourning, which is precisely why the Lehites were there. Nahum was one of the largest burial areas in ancient southwestern Arabia, and the travelers were there to mourn the death of their beloved friend, Ishmael. Joseph Smith simply could not have known this in 1830. Some of the theories proposed to explain away this coincidence have higher odds in Vegas of occurring than Joseph Smith just making a wild and lucky guess. Evidence number three. Cement, cement, and more cement. For one particular physical evidence, look no further than a plethora of archaeological sites from many different centuries, but particularly centuries on either side of the meridian of time. That evidence? Cement. The Book of Mormon reports that during this same period during the first century BC, the Nephites faced a tricky challenge. The worst fears of the Lorax had come true. The land had been scavenged of timber. This forced them to rely upon cement construction for housing and other buildings, becoming, or so we're told, quite the experts. No one in Joseph Smith's time could have pointed to any Native American cement wall or fountain with gargoyles or garden gnomes. B.H. Roberts wrote a letter in 1932 citing a few sources for cement work that predated the Book of Mormon's publication, but this information was highly obscure until the middle of the 20th century. Employing the word cement was cited as anachronistic proof of the Book of Mormon's fabrication. Once again, patience transformed this into a non-issue. Not only have cement structures been identified throughout Mesoamerica, but, as anthropologist John Sorensen noted, the first century B.C. appearance of cement in the Book of Mormon agrees strikingly with the archaeology of central Mexico. John W. Welch pointed out that no archaeologist in 1829 could have known how accurately the dating of this technological adaptation correlated with what was happening on the ground. These are a few big-picture physical evidences. What about smaller stuff? Are there artifacts that might uh, fit in the palm of your hand? Yes, there are. Evidence number four, the Seal of Mulek. 
First, realize that evidences of a sacred text are extraordinary things. Artifacts that support the Old Testament, for example, are rare and highly treasured by people of faith in Israel and throughout the world. Now consider a small clay emblem for stamping documents excavated in Jerusalem in the 1980s with the name Malkiyahu ben Hamalek, or Malkiyahu, son of the king. This seal dates, conveniently, to the late 7th or early 6th centuries B.C. Book of Mormon readers are well aware of a tribal group who claim to descend from a son of King Zedekiah named Mulek. Trouble is, history wasn't aware of any Prince Mulek, let alone any children of King Zedekiah who survived the Babylonian massacre. And one who found allies and migrated to the New World? Forget about it. That's what makes this seal so interesting. Mulek is easily an epigrammatic or shortened form of Malkiyahu, exactly as today we'd shorten Alexander to Alex or Nathaniel to Nate. Mulek may have also been mentioned in Jeremiah 38, 6. This artifact is so small, it could fit on your fingernail, yet its ramifications could be ginormous. Definitely worth digging for further details. Evidence number five, the vindication of barley. Our final evidence is also small, as tiny as a single grain. In fact, it is a grain. In Mosiah 7.22, we read that the Nephites cultivated barley, even utilizing it for monetary purposes. And behold, we at this time do pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites, to the amount of one half of our corn and our barley, and even all our grain of every kind. Barley comes up in the Book of Mormon four different times. Joseph Smith was a farmer. He ought to have known what barley was, right? Yet prior to A.D. 1492, this grain wasn't known to have existed, let alone cultivated, in this hemisphere. Thus, more fodder for Book of Mormon criticism and ridicule. It wasn't until 1983 that archaeologists acknowledged the existence and cultivation of a type of New World barley that dated to as early as 800 B.C. Conclusion This is in no way a complete list. I've barely scratched the surface. Even limiting it to physical evidences, this list is wholly inadequate. But for now, eh, it'll do. My objective today was to offer a sampling of the growing compendium of Book of Mormon archaeological evidences. Also to remind us all, members and non-members, laymen and scholars, that our most valuable attribute with regard to this research may be patience. As LDS scholars have attested, time has not diminished the Book of Mormon's relevance. Instead, it has expanded and amplified it. Still, it's important to restate the core objective. Physical evidence pales next to personal revelation, a promise the Book of Mormon extends to every sincere and faithful inquirer. This principle was vital before most of today's scientific fields were defined and will surely endure long after such disciplines have redivided and resubdivided ad infinitum. Remember, stay close to the Lord. 
And if you don't feel as close to the Lord today as you did yesterday, who moved? Thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening. Thank you.